Hello, and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I am your favorite host, Caleb, here, as always, with my older brother. What are we talking about today, Andrew? Well, we're continuing our series on the Iroquois in the American Civil War. Uh, that's right. I, I want to say last week, I don't know why, but it seems really blurry, but I think we talked about Ely Parker, and uh, no? No. <laughs> What was our last episode, Andrew? We talked about the Seneca Cayuga tribe and the Western War on in Indian Territory between Standwady and the Cherokees. Uh, and I had to go back and listen to it because it doesn't ring any bells. I might learn something. Yeah, you should. It's a very good episode. <laughs> before that, well, we had an interview with somebody else. But before that, we had an April Fool's Day episode. And before that, we had a three-part series on Ely Parker. Okay. That's the last thing I remember. Mm. Uh, so today we're going to be focusing on another Parker, uh, Ely's little brother. Uh, it's not going to be just about him, but uh, we're going to be talking uh, about the 132nd Regiment. They had a company called the Tuscarora Company. Mm-hmm. So let's begin. I guess since you mentioned him, we should start with uh, Ely's younger brother, uh, Mr. Isaac Newton Parker, born in 1833. Uh, Like his brother Ely, he had an American education and was said to have been an excellent student of literature. Of his youth, we don't know much. Uh, It's said that he had a lot of wanderlust and would often disappear for long periods of time on his excursions. We don't know a lot about him, but he was raised in a well-respected Seneca family. His father was a Baptist minister and a war veteran from 1812. And his mother was the granddaughter of the Seneca prophet, Handsome Lake. And we've talked a lot about him. You know, he's probably appeared in 15 different episodes over the year. But these are basically like uh, kind of minor nobility amongst the Seneca and the Iroquois. Even though they had no nobility. Yes, but as far as influence, like everybody knew who the Parkers were. We mentioned briefly in one of our past episodes that the the Parker family became introduced to a man named Lewis Henry Morgan. He was that guy we talked about that had this Indian fan club in Rochester, New York, and uh, they'd all get together and dress up as Indians and have a good time. Uh, but he really was fascinated with the Iroquois, their culture, and their history. And he went on to publish the book League of the Iroquois. And if you've ever done any reading, this book will pop up because it was it was the book it, for 50 years. He's known as the father of American anthropology because he was the first person to actually study a society and culture as a whole and document it. And throughout this book, book, you'll see illustrations of Haudenosaunee people uh, with tomahawks, uh, wearing wampum belts and things like that. And for almost all the pictures, it was uh, one or another of the Parker family opposing for this book. Lewis Henry Morgan and his friends uh, pulled strings to get all of them educations. And in 1850, Newton Parker and his sister Carrie were sent to a normal school in Albany. And by normal, you mean... Yeah, this is one of those things. People read it and they instantly think, oh, so they got to go to a normal school. And like everybody else, he had to go to some, you know, sub-grade school. But in the old days, a normal school uh, was uh, it was like the equivalent of uh, Genesee State University for 
teacher's education. It was a teaching school. If you wanted to become a teacher in a school, you had to go to a normal school. That's what they were called. So, and actually in China, that is still what they're called. A normal university is a, a teaching education university. In October of 1860, he went to Onondaga to attend the yearly Six Nations Council gatherings. Around this time, he began thinking it'd be a good idea to actually write down the stories of the uh, Iroquois veterans from the War of 1812. These guys were getting up in years now, and he wanted to make sure that this history was not lost. In 1859, he began writing to a young woman he met from the Cattaraugus Reservation named Sarah Jemison. And two years later, they were married, and then the war broke out. Andrew, is she a direct descendant of Mary Jemison? I have not done research, but most people with that name would be. So based on the timeline here, she's probably a granddaughter, mm -hmm. but I did not check. Yeah, the records weren't always that great, especially because we were using their their Christian Christianized names and uh they they weren't all a lot of times they were spelled differently so the records are really tough to look back i, I tried to find some other things on uh, on her but couldn't find much but uh so the war broke out then what happened andrew well do you want me to give you in the entire history of the american civil war i think uh, most of us if probably... you can sum it up in about 10 seconds go ahead people thought slaves yeah we want them north said no way man and the South said, don't infringe on our rights, man. And the North said, oh, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And they said, we're going to attack our forts and we're going to succeed. And the Union said, you can't do that. And they said, want to bet? And they did it. And then a whole bunch of battles happened. Okay, that took too long. but I'm good, sorry. Good try. Uh, when the war broke out, you have a whole bunch of Native Americans who maybe they have some sense of patriotism. Maybe they have an urge to distinguish themselves amongst their community. Maybe they're just bored and think it would be a good time, but a lot of Iroquois tried to sign up to join in the Civil War and were promptly rejected. Newt Parker was one of these guys. Uh, he tried, and then he tried again a second time. Uh, this time he, he left the reservation and went to Geneseo, but when they found out he was an Indian, they promptly discharged him after he enlisted. Not a total loss for him, though, because, you see, he had already been issued a full uniform. And so he thought, well, might as well keep it. And he wore the thing home. As 1862 started to slip by, so we're a year and a half into the war, some encouraging news came. Uh, encouraging, I guess, if you want to join the war, not so much because the war was not going well for the North. Uh, the federal government was looking to enlist 300 Indian men from western New York. And, yeah, I, I'm... Like I said, I'm sure it had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that tens of thousands of Americans had been killed in the war so far. Anyway, New and 24 other men from different Iroquoian communities were finally accepted, and subsequently they were placed in Company D of the 132nd New York. This company became a very integrated group of men. It consisted of both Seneca and Tuscarora Indians, as well as first-generation German Americans and some natural-born Americans. Usually, in regiments, you would call every company by a, a designated letter. But no one called this company Company D. To everyone in the army, it became known as the Tuscarora Company. Ely wanted to join this group, as we mentioned in previous episodes, but he wanted to get in as an officer. But his offer for a commission was never accepted, and so he refused to join because he thought that his giftings were going to be wasted on just being some regular old sergeant. 
Andrew, it's kind of lost on us because the way that our military works today is so different than it was back then. But traditionally in the U.S. Army, the commissioned officers would be well-respected members of the community, the community where the regiment or the company for the regiment was raised. So it wasn't outrageous for for Newton Parker to expect uh, a captaincy or minimum uh, a lieutenant's commission because he's educated and he's already has all the influence amongst the Native Americans of the area. So Ely wrote to his brother during the course of the war, and as an inside joke to them, they would he would often address the letters to Sir Isaac Newton. For you uncultured people out there, Isaac Newton was the guy that invented calculus and discovered gravity and pretty much in, figured out how physics works. <laughs> Even though Newt couldn't get a commission, he ultimately ended up accepting an enlistment rank as an NCO, that's non-commissioned officer in the Tuscarora Company. Uh, At the time, it was not uncommon for NCOs, especially senior sergeants like first sergeants, to be offered commissions at later dates. As you know, people quit or get killed. You know, if your second lieutenant gets killed and you have a very competent well-educated sergeant, you might promote him and give him a commission. So I'm sure that played part of the role on him uh, second-thinking this. They said, okay, come on as a sergeant. And he said, okay, that's good enough. Several Iroquois were given positions of leadership, uh, mostly as non-commissioned officers. There was a corporal and two sergeants. And there was also someone named Cornelius Cusick. He was the man who helped enlist all of the, the Iroquois, and he started as a second lieutenant. One man wrote that the group would be like the 300 Spartans led by Leonidas. Caleb, did they ever read the story of the Battle of Thermopylae and what happened to the 300 Spartans? Uh, no, I think they just heard that uh, they were really good warriors. Okay, because I, I would prefer my, my <laughs> unit be compared to maybe a, a unit that didn't die in a glorious <laughs> battle. Cornelius was a Tuscarora, and his grandfather was an interpreter and bodyguard and great friend to the Marquis de Lafayette, who somehow just keeps getting mentioned on our show. Anyway, the elder uh, Cusick was a hero of the War of 1812. He was one of the ones that helped save the Americans of Lewiston during that sneak attack we mentioned in one of our previous episodes when the British crept across the river and raided. Uh, Cusick himself was a Tuscarora sachem, but he ended up giving up his antlers uh, to be in the army. At the time, the crowns, the crown makes you think of a king, but crowns were just what the, the sachems, the senators, wore in their traditional regalia and when they were at meetings. And if you remember from our Confederacy episode, you know that there is this sense of checks and balances in Iroquois government. You could not be a sachem and a war chief at the same time. So he literally passed off his antlers so that he could join the war. After their training was completed, the 132nd was sent to Washington, D.C. at the end of September 1862, and a week later they were assigned to Suffolk, Virginia, under the command of one General John Peck. I just mentioned that because we happen to be friends with one of his descendants. But So Alex Peck, if you're listening, there you go. Yeah. You get, your your great-great-great-grandfather got mentioned in an episode of Iroquois History and Legends. Their main jobs were improving the defense network of the local camps and forts. On Christmas Eve, they were given new orders to head to New Bern, the second largest city in North Carolina, to protect the pivotal railroad junction there. Uh, These rails were like the 
the bottleneck, the, the access point for the entire state. By January of 1863, Cusick was promoted to first lieutenant. And so Mr. Cornelius had become a legend in the army by this time. They started giving him a nickname. They called him War Eagle. Newton Parker wrote that the integrated soldiers were getting along well with one another. And there's no instances recorded anywhere in his journals or letters that hinted that there was any kind of ethnic tension between any of the different groups of men. And then later, Newton Parker was also promoted uh, from corporal to a sergeant, a special kind of sergeant. He was honored as the color bearer. And uh, are you familiar with a color bearer, Caleb? Well, Andrew, uh, lots of people have heard the, the rank ensign. And a lot of people don't realize that ensign means flag or flag bearer. So, insignia. So traditionally, the youngest commissioned officer his job would be to hold and protect the banner. So they called them the ensign. So uh, ultimately in everything but the American Navy and maybe Coast Guard, we ended up switching to the rank second lieutenant. Uh, so he's basically, be, he's basically being given what is normally a, commissioned, a junior commissioned officer's honor, even though he's just a senior non-commissioned officer at this point. And the reason that this position was often open was uh, the Confederates had a very particular strategy, purposely trying to take out the flag bearer. I don't, I don't know if that's really unique to the Confederates. <laughs> I think by this point in human history, people realized, hey, start taking out the leaders. Yeah. And yeah, because they were probably a, a mid-ranked officer. You could figure out who they were. And if the flag fell, somebody else had to pick it up, and so it just slowed down the units by a little bit. And it was also a um, demoralizing. If if your flag fell, people would look and think, oh, maybe the whole regiment's, you know, I just saw the, the regimental colors fall. You know, we're being routed, and people may panic. By February of 1864, they were still stationed there. So we're looking at a, a year has passed. Uh, but their cushy jobs are about to change. There's this Confederate general named General Pickett. If that sounds familiar, he's the famous guy from Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg where he lost like all his men and uh, Lee asked him where his unit was and he says, I have none. Anyway, he was given the task of dislodging the Union from New Bern to free up the rail lines and try and capture some supplies. The Southern forces had about 14,000 troops and they split into three different columns that would try and surround the town. Meanwhile, a naval squadron would coordinate at the same time, and 14 of these small ships would travel up the Neuse River to support them and try and capture the Union ships that are harbored and docked along the river and bay. On February 1st, at 2.30 in the morning, Pickett took one of his columns of about 6,000 men and headed towards an outpost on the Neuse River. It was defended at a bridge crossing over Bachelor's Creek, but Pickett didn't really have any intel and he had no clue how many men stationed there. Any idea, Caleb, how many there would be stationed at this pivotal bridge crossing? Uh, probably thousand, a couple thousand. Uh, it turns out 11. 11,000? 11, uh, no. 1,100? No, 11. 11 <laughs> men of the 132nd uh, with a, another lieutenant from Company G, Abram Haring. Pickett had no idea how many were there, so shots start getting fired, and against all odds, the men held out for an hour. Pickett was too scared to charge in the dark since he didn't know what he was getting into. Maybe his experience at Gettysburg had taught him to be more skittish, 
After about an hour, some men from the Tuscarora Company came up running in to reinforce the picket line. But they were outnumbered by a million to one. Okay, well, maybe not a million to one, but you get the, what what would we say, 6,000 against uh, 11 plus some men from Company D. We're looking at probably less than 100. But the, the Iroquois fought so fiercely that it said that the attackers had to set up artillery cannons getting ready to open fire. And then the Union forces started sending a few men around Pickett's flank to start firing at them to cause even more confusion. And the fighting lasted for four hours. So, you know, now we're looking at towards 6.30 in the morning. And the the officer knew that the sun is going to be up soon. And then the rebels will figure out that they really don't have anybody here. So the lieutenant gave orders for everyone to fall back to New Bern. Uh, Colonel Clayson wrote to his superiors and made special note of the Tuscarora Company. He wrote, uh, quote, They heroically held the all-important point for over one hour against thousands of the enemy. Another general praised Lieutenant Kusick for and his men for their, quote, individual instances of coolness and heroism, unquote. Lieutenant Haring for his efforts would be a given the Medal of Honor, which uh, if you're an American, you know that that is the highest military honor that you can be given. During the fighting, 80 men from the 132nd were captured, including a Seneca man named William Kennedy. He was to be sent to the infamous Andersonville prison camp in Georgia. And there, Kennedy died due to malnutrition and scurvy on September 27th of that year. He would just be one of 13,000 people to die there. He was just 21 years old. Uh, Andersonville prison was the most deadly acres of land in American American history. history. It's the deadliest spot. It's 13,000 graves just in that one camp. If you've ever been, uh, words can't describe it. Uh, Southern forces continued to advance on New Bern and were within a mile of it when Pickett halted. He was looking for his partner, General Hoke, to come around and help him take the city But then he got a message uh, saying that, oh, the other column just crossed the Trent River. Were we not supposed to do that? Uh, It's going to take us two days to backtrack and meet up. And Pickett realized, I can't take the city without any reinforcements. And they'll be re-entrenched by this time. And so he sat there for a bit. And then a few days later, he just withdrew. And after the disaster of Gettysburg, and now the failure at taking New Bern in North Carolina... Pickett was fired, and Major General Hoke took command of the North Carolina forces. Hoke would end up having a massive victory a few weeks later at the Battle of Plymouth. That would be the last major victory that the Confederates would have for the rest of the war. And in a lot of ways, it's very bad that they did, because at this point in the war, the the Confederacy is getting burned out. They really need a victory to convince their own men that they have any chance of holding out and just when they needed a victory most they got one and they ended up capturing several whole regiments thousands of uh, men uh, at the Battle of Plymouth. Now Caleb we've been talking about now now Caleb we've been talking about New Bern and if that sounds familiar it's because we've talked about this place a lot before. If you go all the way back we did a three-part series on the Tuscarora War. And New Bern was the colony that was established by Christopher de Graffenreid that set off the whole Tuscarora War. And so 
How ironic is it that 150 years later, after the destruction of their homes, their people were enslaved. Remember, some of them were sent to like the, the West Indies as slaves and never to return. Uh, thousands were killed and raped, and then they fled to New York. And so now the Tuscaroras have returned to their ancestral homeland, and they're here fighting to protect it from the Confederacy and dying for it again. I'd say it's ironic, but we always misuse the word ironic. I would I would say it's ironic. I don't think by definition it is. I mean, it's not like rain on your wedding day. or <laughs> Which is also not ironic. No, it's not. <laughs> that I agree with. You know what is ironic? Like 10,000 spoons when you just need a knife? No, that's okay. not ironic either. Okay. What's ironic is that Alanis Morissette sure knows a lot about things being ironic. Caleb, tell me about torpedoes. <laughs> After all this has settled down, the Union Army re-entrenches, they're protecting New Bern, keeping it safe, and then another disaster happens. A huge explosion. It took a long time to figure out what happened because all they could find was little pieces of people's fingernails, but because the month before uh, Plymouth had fallen, that's Plymouth, North Carolina. Uh, Not Plymouth, England? Not Not Plymouth, Massachusetts? Exactly. Not a a Plymouth minivan? (sighs) After the fall of Plymouth in North Carolina, the Union Army became desperate to protect the waterways. So they started mass-producing giant torpedoes to rig as mines in uh, in all the rivers. They were kind of rushing the manufacturing process, so they they really weren't thinking too much about safety. Uh, But they were the only things powerful enough to destroy these new modern ironclad battleships that were being created. The torpedoes, Andrew, they had 250 pounds of gunpowder in them. That's like a barrel, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) They were put in normal iron barrels. So picture picture those like 50-gallon drums that you see, and this, this was one of their bombs. So these are being made and then shipped to the depot. And the lieutenant in charge of the train depot wasn't around when the torpedoes arrived off the train. So the train pulls up and there's these barrels there. The workers assume, hey, these must be filled with corn or these pickled pickled pig's heads or pig feet or something. So they they knock them over and they're rolling them down the ramp off the train. One by one, this is the part in the movie where every time they knock one over and kick it down the ramp, everybody's watching. It's just like, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And there's four torpedoes, and they get three of them off, and they carry them over next to the building where the 132nd New York Infantry is stationed. But they're taking it to the to the building there when there's one torpedo left. And this is where everybody in the audience is going, no, no. They kick the fourth one over, they roll it off, and as it comes off the ramp, the primer is struck in just the right spot. It explodes, causing a chain reaction to the other three torpedoes, and at least 35 men are vaporized instantly. And the people who were luckily luckily, lucky enough to become vaporized, there were an additional 30 that were killed horribly. The death totals from this accident, Andrew, were actually almost as large as the entire upcoming battle of New Bern. Fortunately, I mean, it all depends. It's still people dead. 
But for the members of Tuscarora Company, no one was killed. But Newt Parker said that he was blown in the air and landed 50 feet away from where he was standing. That is quite the distance. A few months later, in June of 1864, Cusick's company travels to Kingston, North Carolina, where they're doing some uh, reconnoitering. And there, they're able to capture the Confederate commandant that was in charge of the town, along with five of his officers and about 50 men. Dispatches that I read anyway, mentioned that Cusick and his dusty warriors were able to entrap the colonel with a flanking maneuver to prevent him from escaping. That was kind of a big deal. The last major fighting for the Tuscarora Company took part in what's known as the Battle of Wise Fork in early March of 1865. The battle started, Andrew, with the Confederates making a quick kind of sprint sneak attack on General Sherman while he was consolidating his Union troops for a march on Goldsboro, North Carolina. It would be fun to do whole episodes on all these things we're mentioning, but I'm sorry, all you're getting is a paragraph. But we're just trying to set the background. But the battle began with the, very well for the Confederates. They captured a 1,000 Union men the very first day of the battle. But the following days, Sherman's troops, uh, which included the 132nd, they were able to uh, reverse the tides of the battle. The Union had better communication, and they were able to communicate with all the other regiments and push the Confederates back, and they were driven off and uh, ultimately became a great victory for Sherman. And this, this was a desperate battle for the Confederacy. Yeah, the war would be over in a month from yeah. this time. Many could tell that they did not have... Uh, a very good chance, and unless they had a huge, massive victory, they knew the war would soon be over. And uh, this, Andrew, was actually the second largest battle fought in North Carolina throughout the entire war. Over 25,000 troops were involved in this battle. I'd never even heard of it before. Well, you just mentioned that because I didn't research (laughs) this part of the episode. (laughs) The battle was important to both sides because it was a huge railroad hub, And whoever controlled it could funnel supplies to their men and continue. And like we said, the war is almost over at this point. In total, Andrew, there were nearly 3,000 casualties. There was only one from Company D, though, a man named uh, Sergeant Foster Hudson. He was shot in the knee, and while he was laying down immobilized, a group of Southerners came up upon him and robbed him. They stole his watch. And then uh, his, his fellow uh, Tuscarora Company compatriots were able to come to his rescue. But his leg injury was really serious. Uh, he ended up losing it. And then two weeks later, he ended up dying because they couldn't get the bleeding under control. The war would end 17 days later. And that was it. The troops headed back north. They were mustered out. The remaining soldiers were given their honorable discharges. And they returned home having played a part in preserving the union of the country that technically they still weren't even a part of. Newt tried to stay on afterwards in the army, however. He actually liked it, and he applied again. He had tried several times while he was still in the army during the war, and so he was going at it another time to see if he could get a commission as a second lieutenant. In late 1866, Lewis Henry Morgan, the anthropologist who we mentioned before, wrote him a letter of recommendations saying, quote, Mr. Parker is a Seneca Indian, the youngest brother of Colonel Ely S. Parker of General Grant's staff, and is the equal of his brother in capacity, unquote. That sounds like a really, really good recommendation, because remember, Ely was promoted to a general 
at that time. And not only a general, but a general, an adjunct general to the future president, the, you know, the hero of the day, basically. This time the commission was approved. Yay! Great for you, Newt! However, when um, Parker went to take his physical, he failed due to poor eyesight, something he had had since he was a child. So he didn't get it. After the war, uh, Newt's life fell apart. He and his wife had, you know, something had happened between them. They weren't talking. She'd stopped writing him letters towards the end of the war. And by 1867, they'd divorced and she'd already remarried. He began to challenge the authority of the leaders on the governing council on the reservation he was a part of. And they, he thought it would be best if he left. And soon thereafter, he departed from New York, never to return. Uh, he moved out west, married a Cherokee woman from Indian Territory, modern Oklahoma, and he worked as a school teacher. But then he just kind of kept traveling further north and west. By 1870, he was in Montana, and that's where he died. Uh, it's said that he had become ill and fallen on his horse while traveling across the prairie with a group of companions. And nothing doing, you're out in the middle of nowhere. They just buried him where he fell. After the war, Cusick remained in the U.S. Army. He enjoyed it, too, and uh, he, he was able to get an appointment. And he eventually was assigned to the Dakota Territory. And as soon as I read this, Andrew, I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, this is one of those dark parts of American history. And here you have a guy that finally gets his commission, and he's going to be going to the Indian Wars. What, what, what could possibly be happening in the late 19th century out in the Dakotas, Caleb? He actually was promoted to captain, and he would end up facing off against famed Lakota leader Red Cloud and somebody you may have heard of, Crazy Horse. Yeah, I've heard of them. But Andrew and I only focus on the Eastern nations, so I'm sorry. You'll have to go and... Uh, I believe History on Fire has a Yeah, I was going to say, on History on Fire has a whole series on them. So listen, listen there to- you go, Daniele Bellelli. You got a free plug. You better return the favor at some point. In... 1892, he was made the Associate Director of Archaeology and Ethnology at the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago. This thing was a big deal. It was, it was before World Fairs really took off, but it was basically a World Fair. I've got a commemorative Columbian half dollar from it. Do you have the quarter? I do not. Did you know they have one? I did not. Yeah. They sold them for the same price. You could get the quarter or the half dollar. So everybody bought the Colombian half dollar. The quarters are, are worth like a couple hundred bucks. Mm. They're, a lot, they're a lot more rare. Anyway. <laughs> Have we ever Plugs. mentioned that Andrew and I are also amateur numismatists? Is there such a thing as a professional numismatist? Pro- there's probably people. I guess if you money. work for the AMA or this. Sure. And NGC. Anyway, in 1904, he died. He was given full military honors. Due to his fighting against Western tribes, however, his own nation didn't really approve of that. And so it was kind of a hot-button issue, and they didn't want him to be buried on any Tuscarora land. And so his grave is in a cemetery just north of the Tuscarora Reservation to this day. So next time... We're going to finish our Civil War series. We're going to head back north to Green Bay, Wisconsin to see what the Oneida Nation has been up to. Next week, right, Andrew? Next week. So thank you for joining us today. I hope you had fun. Andrew and I enjoyed doing this. Uh, Be sure to like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. 
which you probably already are since you're listening to this. But if not, what's wrong with you? Oh, also, I'll say this, too. If you are ever in the Canandaigua area and you would like to get your uh, Wild Sweet Potato Clan mug, I'm done mailing them out after hundreds and hundreds of mailing those things to all of you wonderful listeners. I finally threw in the towel, so I'm sorry if you were expecting one. I haven't gotten one. But if you are in the area and you want to reach out to us on Facebook or through our email off our website, I would be happy to give you one. I had two more emails this week of people asking, and I gave them that same answer. (laughs) Anything else we got to tell them? That's all. Thank you, folks. Bye, everybody.